Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with Scott Pearson, who's a co-founder of Compipe, and we're going to be learning all about his entrepreneurial journey. I know you're going to enjoy hearing his life lessons, so we're going to get straight into it. And if you do, you might want to check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog, because this is episode number 231. And there's heaps more content at theseeds.nz. Now let's get into this conversation with Scott. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Scott Pearson, who's a co-founder of Compipe. Thanks for joining me. Marina, good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. I'm really interested in what you're doing. I always like to find out about new businesses and entrepreneurial journeys. But before we talk about Compipe and what it is, and I'd love to go back in time. So if we could go and if you could recall sort of age four or five, what was like life for you? Where were you living? And give us a, a taste of your childhood. That time, it was the late 70s, uh, and I was growing up in Nelson, and we lived in, in the Brook Valley in a, a just a quiet street, a bit of a cul-de-sac, so we had uh, lots of kids in the area, uh, kind of lower to middle income area, uh, and yeah, we, there was lots of things going on, lots of games of cricket in the street with, with the local kids, and we mm-hmm. Spend a lot of time playing in the local creek, going up Ealing and Crawleys and all those sorts of things that kids do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny to yeah. think about, isn't it? Because I'm thinking of my kids and the difference in some ways that technology has made in that there's devices and TV and other things. It sounds like that was quite an outdoors sort of focus of childhood then. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, a lot of sport and a lot of you know playing out there in the environment, building huts and uh, yeah, so, so more of an outdoors focus growing up. Yeah, in those early early years. Yeah. yeah, and just talk us through then, sort of primary school time and and coming up. Was there subjects that you enjoyed more than others? Yeah, well, so I guess in early uh, years at school, I was probably a little bit of a dreamer, so I sort of just sort of you know cruised through a little bit. But uh, one thing that stood out for me was listening to stories. I really loved to to listen to the teachers read stories, and we had one teacher that was particularly animated and did a great pirate accent and things like that, Mr. Pinkus. And, yeah, I do do think back fondly of, of, of those times. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of subjects and things, yeah, just in, enjoyed, uh, you know, some of the science subjects and, uh, yeah, some of the, I guess, geography uh, type, type areas. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. good. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. good. And coming through high school time, did you know what you wanted to study or, or work as? Originally, not really. I didn't have a, you know, a game plan uh, so to speak, I, I knew at that time my probably just because I grew up in quite an outdoorsy family, lots of tramping, and father was quite a, a keen alpine climber, that sort of thing. It, we we did a lot of experiences outdoors and our weekends, tramping trips away. Uh, so that that did sort of lean me towards subjects around the sciences and uh, being quite interested in, in those areas. It sounds like your father yeah. was an influence if he was out climbing mountains and things yeah yeah he did actually he used to to, uh, drag me along on a few trips and we'd go rock climbing and uh and sort of eventually did some alpine climbing as well with him Mm -hmm. so yeah that was a big very big part of his life and we'd actually have some uh you know guys like peter hillary and some some big names in the climbing community i guess at that time would come and stay at our house and tell Mm -hmm. us some great stories and that was all pretty exciting Yeah. yeah why had your father gotten into that do you think well, we actually immigrated out from England as a family in 1975, so I was two and a half, mm. uh, originally born in Yorkshire. And uh, he, I think he wanted to come away to a country that had the sort of outdoor opportunities that New Zealand offered, mm-hmm. and he also wanted a more egalitarian uh, society. Mm-hmm. And so I think that were the two two big reasons they wanted to, to come to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I think... Got here and and just he really made on with the opportunities. Mm. Uh, probably a little tougher on my mum because she was more of the, the the homekeeper, you know, that traditional family model back then. Mm. So she tended to have to look after the kids and and uh, you know keep the house under control. And mm. yeah, I, I guess my father took more of the opportunities to get away, but mm. we did all as a family still get out and do lots of tramping and things. Yeah. yeah. And did you feel a sense of two identities growing up, having immigrant parents from England? And yet your, you know, your earliest memories would be of New Zealand rather than 
I don't know, the old country or... <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. Even at, uh, I remember when I was five, first year at school, I must probably still had a little bit of a, a Yorkshire accent. Mm-hmm. And yeah, people were did focus on, you know, your friends did focus on the fact that you weren't born in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, at first you did feel a little bit different. Uh, but then I guess you realise that there were actually a lot of other kids in the same boat uh, that had come from different countries. And particularly when I got through to intermediate and later into college, you know, there was a lot more diversity coming into New Zealand. And so you didn't feel that, that different. Mm. Yeah. But for your, for your family itself in terms of cultures and traditions and things, do you think there was that influence from England because of your own parents? or? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I do think you know there were some some you know interesting uh, things that they brought from the way things were done in England and mm. to the way things are done in New Zealand. So there certainly was some cultural contrasts in there. Mm. So uh, what would be some examples? I'm always interested in this type of thing because my wife's from England. So yes, yeah, I've seen different cultures and things. But yeah, in your experience, yeah, I think probably in New Zealand, uh, as I said, that that class structure isn't as strong. So you know, we grew up skiing at Mount Robert Ski Field. And, you know, while at times, you know, we, we didn't have a lot of money and we didn't have the, the flash of ski gear and that sort of thing. So at times some people might look, look you know, slightly down at us and say, oh, well, you know, mm. you're not one of us. Mm. But uh, mostly I actually found people were very open mm. to and friendly uh, no matter what class or, you know, socioeconomic background they came from. Mm-hmm. So that was, I think, a really big difference that that New Zealand did live up to, that reputation of being open and friendly. Yeah. Uh, I guess in a yeah. sense it's a young country, even now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in, in, yeah, totally. You know, in terms of the stratification of society, because in England, because I lived there for three years, and yeah. there's definitely a upper upper class, you know, and then there's a sort of middle class, and, a, you know, like it's it's kind of been set in stone for so many hundreds of years. And yes, and people go to certain schools and they can afford to send their kids to those schools and therefore they get these jobs and therefore, you know, there's a lot of flow on of legacy, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. Mm. Uh, it was interesting. I, I guess b- both my mum and dad came from more of a working class uh, background. Mm-hmm. My father's parents worked on the railways in England and my mother's family were, were sort of in the, in the trades. Uh, yeah, it was, it was interesting when... They came out here, uh, you know, having, I, I guess they sort of related quite well to Kiwis probably because of that. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And so did you have any sense of one day I'll go back to England or did you grow up with an identity that I'm a Kiwi, this is my spot? Yeah, definitely more the latter that, uh, you know, I, I wanted to be a Kiwi mm. and, uh, you know, felt, felt like a Kiwi mm. and certainly helped once, you know, my, obviously the accent uh, and things when I'm overseas and everything is you're immediately recognised as a Kiwi and mm. and that's that's always great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, good. So, so you get to the end of high school. Um, yeah, what what happened next? Yeah, well, uh, I guess r- right at the end of high school, uh, I was able to get on a, a a really amazing trip in my last year to mm. Nepal, uh, and that was an Everest expedition, uh, 1990, to, to base camp. They took a lot of uh, students up. We had a group of about 25 students. Mm. And we were able to trek into Nepal up to base camp and met uh, Rob Paul and Gary Ball at the time. They'd just summited Everest, and it was mm. a very exciting time mm. uh, for those guys. And, yeah, that kind of really opened my eyes up to the world, uh, particularly, you know, going through Nepal and seeing the contrast there through Kathmandu and then into the valleys with, you know, some obvious displays of poverty, but some obvious displays of absolute happiness amongst Mm. the people as well. Yeah. And from there, uh, I guess I came back to, you know, think about what next. Mm. And I'd done quite well in geography and biology at school. Mm. Biology made a lot of sense to me and, uh, you know, I've actually felt found it was a good way to explain a lot of things that happen in our society uh, when you look back at the sort of fundamental biological reasons mm. for things. Mm. Uh, in yeah. that time in Nepal, is there, like, do you recall a moment or like, I, I can imagine, I've never been, but I can imagine that there's these views and like just the sheer size of the mountains must be almost overwhelming to be sitting there. Like as a young person looking out, do you, was there a moment when you, you know, that you recall as being like, wow, this is, 
what does the future hold, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I just think, yeah, I'd seen some photos and things before I, I left and yeah, having the Alpine background, I was pretty excited mm. from that perspective. But yeah, it's not until you actually got there and often in the morning and uh, when you're in, these, in the Kumbu Valley, you've got uh, low cloud uh, and there until about lunchtime. And so you get up and you can't see really too much. And then by lunchtime, suddenly these just uh, colossal mountains come up and, uh, and suddenly you're in blue sky and this is uh, incredible peaks. So you're right, it really was just uh, pretty breathtaking. Yeah. Yeah. Because the other thing is that you said base camp and I think I assume that that's like sea level, but it's not, right? It's like yeah, you're, it's, you're pretty high. Yeah, about 18,500 feet. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. We actually flew into Lukla, which is about 10,000, and okay. then you sort of trek over over several, a couple of weeks as you acclimatize to get up to that. Right. higher level yeah yeah so ah, really interesting thank you. so you come back and and yeah what happened next straight into studying or yeah uh, i did uh, decide to i guess you know my parents were certainly encouraging us to to go to university and i think that was what a lot of my friends were doing as well so i uh, went down to to lincoln university and uh, studied resource studies there which is you know, similar to a geography degree and uh, focused on ecology and land water management in those, oh, those okay. first three years. Huh. Yeah, which was the first version of that course that had occurred and it was, yeah, I found it really, really quite interesting. Yeah, because yeah. that must have been a time when people were kind of waking up more than they had in previous decades to the natural world and the resources and the water and the water quality and things. Was it around that time that was was there lots of change happening? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, the I went to university in 1991, and that was coincided with the Resource Management Act coming into fruition, and that was uh, certainly a, a very pivotal moment for New Zealand in terms of its environmental legislation and everything that's followed that, mm. uh, both positive and negative. So it was certainly, yeah, a good time to be getting into that space. And there was, yeah, a lot of, uh, we had a lot of interesting people come into the university and talk to us about different things they were doing, mm -hmm. yeah, in that yeah. area. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And when you got to the end of that degree, what, what were the career pathways or <laughs> what happened? Yeah, well, I, I guess a lot of uh, the friends that were, were there were, were starting out, you know, processing resource consents and things like that, getting work in local councils and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I was mindful, one of my senior lecturers there had said, you know, if you really want to do well in resource management, you, you should really do a master's, come back and do that. Mm. Uh, and I wasn't quite ready for that, so I ended up deciding to go overseas with my younger brother, I was very close to, and uh, we had a two-year OE and spent uh, five and a half months uh, first up down in South America traveling around down there mm -hmm. this is in 1994 mm -hmm. so it was, it was a really uh, interesting time back then to be traveling around mm -hmm. uh, we, it, i guess it still wasn't that common to have western travelers mm. in that part of the world and you know we had to immerse ourselves in a completely different language mm -hmm. uh you know steve was 18 i was 21 so it was a pretty exciting time for us yeah. and yeah we just just really loved it got to quite a few countries yeah, yeah so how did you sides. do it it's a People say South America, and it's actually a huge continent. So, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Did you go like was Andes of interest, Chile and Peru and that sort of side, or were you more over in Brazil? Or? Well, we actually started out in Argentina, so okay. flew in, in there and had far too much gear, and they just floated the dollar there to the US dollar, and so it was very expensive. So we actually sort of hightailed it out of there pretty quickly into Uruguay and up into southern Brazil mm -hmm. uh, and spent a bit of time there and then uh, flew across the Andes and, and looked at Peru, Bolivia and Chile and, and sort of made our way through those areas mm -hmm. and yeah, some real highlights in there like getting into the uh, the, the Bolivian Amazon uh, was, was just amazing. We mm -hmm. did a, a boat trip in there and spent five days in, immersed in the bush there and yeah, it was pretty incredible yeah mm -hmm. it was meant to be an eco tour it wasn't technically an eco tour unfortunately they were still doing some practices which weren't great like we saw a, a freshwater stingray going through one of the rivers and the guy that was with us threw his machete at it and killed it and he said hey come over and check this out and it was kind of like <laughs> we were expecting it to be an eco tour and to just observe it so we were a bit shocked at some of the the practices were, were pretty 
basic back then. Uh, and yeah, so, but but overall, it was a really interesting experience. We were on a big river there and quite remote. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Well, it's a beautiful part of the world. I, I lived for a year in Chile, um, oh, and then I traveled through Bolivia and Peru quite a lot in yes. Argentina. And um, yeah, the, just the contrast. Like, yeah. I don't know if you did it, but I went on a train. Um, I think it was between Bolivia, Peru, down into Chile, and through the the, the mountains. You know, the the really high yes. places, and there's n- there's nothing. You know, it's just yeah. it's just bare. The big altiplano. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You just keep going and going and going, and um, but then you descend down and get to some of the towns there in Chile. And then, of course, it's actually quite similar to New Zealand in the south of Chile. Yeah, it's incredible, the beach forests and things and the yeah. volcanoes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I did find it interesting there. Like the, I think the transport was interesting. The, like We did a trip from Arequipa through to La Paz, mm-hmm. and that was a 19-hour trip. And it, was only, it wasn't that long in terms of kilometres, but it was very, very slow and mm. arduous. And I think in the middle of the night, the temperature must have dropped down to... To, to well below freezing mm. and we were just lucky we had sleeping bags with us and mm. these two poor Italian guys that were in the you know next to us just had basic light jackets and things and they 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 weren't very comfortable at all yeah so sort of ended up huddling a bit <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah oh interesting so mm. you came back from there to New Zealand or what happened next uh yeah, I was sort of we we travelled on from South America up into North America. We had a, a, an aunt in Colorado uh, Springs, mm-hmm. and so we stayed with her for a little bit. We uh, bought a, a van and did that up into a camper, and then we sort of did the a bit of a tour through the uh, Northern Cascades, mm-hmm. doing a lot of mountain biking and and just just exploring. Mm-hmm. Uh, Went over to spent a little bit of time in Europe, but but sort of found that pretty expensive. We we managed to do a couple of interesting things uh, while we were there, uh, but yeah, most of the time was spent sort of focused yeah. on that North America. Europe. South America, yeah. yeah so. You really covered a lot, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it was great. It yeah. was it was a really neat trip, and uh, yeah, I've got got fond memories. I think it's it's important when you're young to get out and do that uh, when you've not got too many other responsibilities on mm-hmm. your plate. Yeah, yeah well, it opens your eyes to different ways, and I'm sure you saw poverty in South America that you had never been confronted with in the same way yeah. here, you know. it's a, yeah. yeah, oh, exactly. There's one hut we went into, we were doing a trek on the Ananuku Trail up in Juarez, um, you might, mm. might have been there in mm. Peru, and we we went in, we heard this this guy calling us, and we went into the hut, and he was there, and he, he injured his leg somehow, uh, chopping wood or something, and he had a massive gash in his leg, and he wasn't in very good shape and so we uh, in our very poor Spanish tried to uh, understand what was going on but we ended up bandaging him up and you know, encouraged him to catch the next truck out to, to your civilization so he could get some help mm. but yeah just little things like that were yeah that, that's kind of the real world when you're in, thrown into those situations and you yeah. don't have the 111 at your disposal yeah yeah, yeah no ambulance to come and that's check right. in yeah. so the the degree that you'd done when you got back to New Zealand how did how did it manifest itself or what have you been involved in since then yeah it's I I guess the coming back I had a lot of time to think while I was overseas on that trip as Mm. to what I wanted to do and uh, I was quite interested in the whole concept of ecotourism and sort of getting visitors into natural places and, and particularly the interpretation side of it understanding more about the natural environment mm-hmm. so I ended up doing an, uh, a small thesis or individual project on ecotourism and Kaikoura mm. and looking at the whole whale watch and it was still in its sort of infancy at that stage mm-hmm. so yeah both looking at the potential impacts from that activity uh, and also the potential benefits and you know, one of the things that was really interesting back then was looking at how businesses could contribute to the environment. And uh, you know, just originally the idea was that they just give a little part of their clip the ticket that goes back to you know a particular environmental cause or something like that, or mm. the area they're, they're they're showing visitors and they give something back. Mm. And so yeah, it was that kind of. I guess sparked my interest in the tourism industry, and that's kind of where I, I went from. Having done my masters, I went mm-hmm. went out and started working for the Tourism Industry Association, okay. which is a bit like Federated Farmers for for the tourism sector. Mm-hmm. And so we were working early on uh, with tourism businesses on uh, improving their sustainability, 
and improving their safety uh, safety practices as well. And at that stage, a lot of there was some pressure coming down from the European Union that for booking their clients from Europe to come to New Zealand. They they wanted to know you know what are your safety standards and what are your environmental practices and things. And so we said, well, look, guys, you can either do it now or you can be forced to do it in five or ten years time when it's mandatory so mm. we tried to get ahead of it and yeah it was quite satisfying being yeah. involved in some of that early stuff and i yeah. guess the the sales pitch is pretty easy because if if something goes wrong it usually goes really wrong and uh it could impact everybody involved in that particular area right yeah definitely particularly with the safety side of things yeah. and yeah. sometimes a bit disappointed with the you know the government's attitude we we uh, reviewed the maritime safety rules for um, small craft like kayaking and rafting and that sort of thing and mm-hmm. spent all this effort in, in getting those rules up to speed and then uh, the we wanted to see that implemented out there with all the industries and, and the attitude at the time from some in the government was that well we'll wait until there's a few more deaths and then we'll then we'll enforce it right which I thought was the wrong approach and mm. it really should have been. Not very proactive, is it? No, it's, it's, it's not a great way to, to you know, get improve things. Yeah. Uh, so how yeah. long did you end up doing that for? It sounds like it was quite a while. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, for first three or four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was doing that, and uh, you know, based out of Christchurch here, and and then, yeah, that sort of did that until I I met my partner who was over on a teaching exchange from America, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, so so that was. Uh, yeah, at that time we then decided to, to get married and go back to, to America, to Colorado, uh, and I lived there for a, a year. So, yeah, that was mm. probably something I hadn't planned, but, uh, you know, it was an exciting back change. Back into the mountain areas? <laughs> yeah, very much. Well, she's actually from uh, Michigan, and okay. which is more of a flat lakes and area, sort of up um, in the Midwest of America there mm-hmm. by the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, we both decided that Colorado was, was you know, probably as close to New Zealand as we could get in in America so oh that's cool and I think the current venture that we're about to talk about had its origins back even that time right like yes and and just set the scene in terms of timing like what year are we talking about and and how did these origins begin yeah we got married in 2002 uh, early part of the year and then uh, headed over to Colorado Springs and uh, at that time, we didn't have a great game plan. We just decided we'd go over there and find work. Mm-hmm. And we are in a little place called Monument. My, uh, Heather got a teaching job, and I was uh, sort of looking to try and set up a little bit of a tourism uh, adventure with, a, with another guy over there mm-hmm. uh, in the adventure tourism sector. And, uh, yeah, we were, at that time, uh, a, a fairly big event happened, uh, and it was the Heyman bushfire. And I like to think of it as a good example of the butterfly effect because what happened in that situation was a, uh, ironically, a fire warden uh, decided to burn a letter that she was very upset about in, in a, a camping fire pit and it got out of control on her and, and started this massive bushfire right across the state of Colorado and you know, she, we're talking really, really big area and, and very much out of control and there was a lot of and the houses in the area that we were staying were starting to become under you know, serious threat. And you could see the, the smoke. And uh, we ended up helping a lot of the homes in that area clear scrub and, and debris around their house that was potential fire fuel. Uh, and in doing that, we got a lot of dust and, and you know, up our nose and there was some smoke in the air. And really, that was really where the first uh, thoughts of... Uh, the act of smoking and what that did to your lungs and how there must be a better way for people to to you know have a habit without you know having to do this to your lungs so, i see so the external yeah. source yeah like you weren't choosing to be there but it it was there and it, and it was coming in and affecting you that's right yeah it just sort of made me think oh you know this is this is not good for the lungs mm-hmm. and you know, early on i started thinking about whether things like uh, orange oil and uh, could help people to clean their lungs out, the ones that have been smoking and had got a lot of tar and, and uh, contaminants inside their lungs. You know, and that was where I was curious to think, what else could we do? That, or what, what was something that would help people to uh, move away from that? Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, that's good. Mm. So I, I am curious just, uh, and, and I don't know much about smoking. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, there's been lots of legislation changes in the last decade or last two decades in terms of like in New Zealand, you know, there's certain areas that you can't smoke anymore. And mm. the, the packaging is all very uh, in your face with pictures and, and are you sure you want to do this type of messaging? Um, but yeah, can you just talk us through maybe, you know, the, the detriment of smoking, you know, and, and what it does do to your lungs? Is that something that you've looked into to... Yeah. yeah, certainly. I, I don't claim to be an expert in that space, but uh, certainly with you know my, my master of science background and things like that, I've got, I've got a pretty good idea of, of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, basically you're breathing in uh, a lot of carbon monoxide, and also just the combustion process of tobacco means that you're you are effectively combusting a lot of different products at high temperature, and that puts a lot of things into the lungs that the body's not designed to handle. Mm-hmm. The uh, the delicate alveoli in the lungs, the little capillary sacs, aren't, aren't designed to handle that those big big particles, and the combustion process also makes a lot of those particles toxic. So yeah, really doing that on, over a long term really does uh, start to clog the lungs up, mm. uh, and can start to calcify them and uh, make them not work very well. Mm. So. That was certainly drummed into us as kids uh, as we were growing up, the the, the downsides of smoking. Yeah. As you say, like on these packages and things, now you're seeing some of the, the graphic images of what it can do. I mean, the interesting thing is it kills 8 million people a year around the world. And when you put that in a sort of a COVID context, uh, it's interesting the, res- the, the global response we've had to COVID, and it's obviously a very tough, challenging time for people at the moment, mm. particularly other countries. Uh, but we are more accepting of the the death rate that occurs through smoking, mm. partly because it's probably not quite such a direct mm. causal effect, uh, but also because it's kind of been culturally indoctrined over time. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating if you look back at movies, even mm. not even that many decades ago, and most of the characters will be smoking, or you know, because that was just that's what people did. Yeah, you know, it's just. Um, yeah, particularly if you go back further to the 20s and 30s and 40s, you know, it was just mm. kind of accepted part. People didn't even think about it, I think. Yeah, that's right. And even Netflix and things today with these historical dramas we have, you do still see quite a lot of smoking in them. Mm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it, it is one of those things that sort of crept up. It was a little bit like the boiling frog mm. situation, I think. You know, where originally doctors and things thought it was, was great. Mm. Uh, and then suddenly realized, yeah, in a big way. Maybe not so not no. so much. So the seed was planted in that moment or the fires and realizing that you were breathing in toxic smoke and, and other things. Um, yeah, what, what's happened since then? Was that 2002, was it? Or yeah, that's then? right. Yeah. yeah. So I guess we uh, things were pretty tough uh, at, in America at that time. It was after September 11, and, and the, the local economy was quite depressed. Mm. Uh, so we ended up deciding to come back to New Zealand, which was doing a lot better, and, and continue working there. Mm. Uh, I we, we had a brief stint in Wellington and then moved to North Canterbury and had, bought a lifestyle block down there. And uh, That gave me a good opportunity to uh, just spend a bit of time in, in my shed, playing around with some ideas. And I think that... Um, with any uh, process of invention, I think a lot of it's around just discovery and exploring and being open to, to look at other ideas. And when you do that, suddenly other things, you know, uh, you, you recognise other little patterns or, or relationships and, and, you know, that's that's kind of how I came up with the concept of the pipe itself and doing the dual breathing uh, so that you could enjoy a pipe type uh, experience but not have it directed straight into the lungs you would direct something a lot safer in terms of an aroma up into the nose mm. but the actual mechanics of that did take quite a lot of drawing and experimenting and there's some pretty rudimentary uh, designs early on in my shed with the materials yeah. i had and was yeah. there a, was there a breakthrough moment when you thought oh this this would work or or was it like a 
months and years of trying and, and <laughs> doing different things. Yeah, a bit of both, to be honest. Uh, I I guess I did a simulation with some honey and some lavender early on and just blew some air through a, a pipe and just into the nose. And I thought, wow, that smelled pretty good. And I think I could work with something along those lines. Mm. But uh, funny enough, it was uh, my mountain bike uh one of those sort of track pumps you use for pumping up tyres that I was trying to simulate the air coming through the pipe that, that gave me the idea to push it up into the nose. Hmm. And so just as I said, just because you're in that space and you're looking for different ideas, suddenly that was a bit of an aha moment for the, the design that eventually went on to, to be patented. Hmm. Uh, so I saw it as a hobby back then and probably because I was working on a lifestyle block, I was very busy as well and had a... Uh, a full-time job sort of in the tourism industry in the local area uh, sort of marketing the region that um, it was really just ticked, up, ticked along as a hobby in my weekends and, and when I could for, and it wasn't until uh, we moved up to Topor and I was sort of doing a, the tourism marketing role up there that I really got a, l- a little bit more interested in wanting to focus on the idea yeah yeah it's interesting as well though that the, you know, the experimentation that's required to get a solution. Um, I think it's Thomas Edison who said, somebody said, how can you have failed a thousand times? You know, and, and he said, I haven't failed. I've found 1,000 ways that don't work, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's that sort of attitude, I bet. Like, keep trying, keep trying. Yeah, it is actually. And it's it's been a... Re- it's it's really tough at times. Mm. You know, there was a part of me that really wanted to do something in a pioneering way. I was very keen to help people with the smoking problem, but mm. also wanted to do something new and different. Uh, and it, it pretty much was like that. You know, we've ended up having twenty different marks of the pipe, mm. uh, and I early on lots of different drawings, trying to think how I could make this work. And it's a fairly simple concept, but to actually Airflow, air I've always been interested in sort of magnets and vacuums and things right from about 12 or 14. Mm. And managing airflow is, is quite challenging because it can get in through such small spaces and that. So you, you have to have things well sealed and, and the right sort of materials. Mm. So it probably wasn't until digital printing came along that I was actually had the, the type of degree of uh, precision to actually make the thing work properly and, mm. and efficiently. Mm. It's mm. interesting to me as well, though, that most people, if they thought smoking isn't good, they would then, you know, get involved in an education campaign or, um, you know, help with an anti-smoking group or something. Whereas what you've done is kind of gone quite a different approach, which is I'll invent something which can help people have a replacement from the thing that is hurting their lungs. Was it, yeah, it's just interesting to me. I guess it's an entrepreneurial, you know, inventor sort of approach rather than, well, let's have better education about how bad smoking is. Yeah, I, it's really interesting you point that out. Uh, and I think part of it stems back to my family back in England. My great-grandfather, uh, he smoked a pipe and my grandfather did as well. And even the milk vendor that I worked with in Nelson when I was a kid on doing what we called the milk run, mm. uh, he smoked a pipe as well. And I quite enjoyed the, the flavour of it. Mm. And perhaps because of that that uh, history with that, I, I like the concept of a pipe. I like to use a fountain pen. I like some of those uh-huh. those sort of individual personalised devices. And so maybe that was part of the reason why I was keen to try and find something along those lines yeah yeah Yeah. it's interesting my great-grandfather always smoked a pipe he died long before i was born but Mm. there's photos of him and basically every photo he's holding the pipe or it's in his mouth or whatever so it was definitely a big thing you know like it it would have been a whole product line i bet within yeah wherever you went to buy your pipes (laughs) yeah oh it's amazing you know i think you know you look at shows like uh peaky blinders and things like that you know the 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 sort of the style they had back then the baker boy hats and the yeah yeah quite intricate as well like um you know kind of beautiful design really a big s shape and yeah Yeah. i I think again one of the things the pipe gave uh people back then particularly in the working classes was a little taste of the 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 aristocracy or the upper right. classes it yeah. was something that they could do that was also done by the aristocracy mm. and they could feel 
a little bit more refined or a little bit more like a, a, yeah. a, a, a you know, crossing a over those class <laughs> levels that we were talking about before. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually got this great photo of, of my grandfather and great grandfather walking down Hunstanton Beach in England, which is sort of a, a little bit of a holiday beach resort. Uh-huh. And, you know, they're there in all their sort of dapper gear, and, and he's got the pipe, in, my grandfather's got the pipe in his mouth and, you know, uh-huh. hands in his. Uh, uh, in his waistcoat, and yeah, they're just just looking, walking along, and looking really confident and happy, and mm-hmm. yeah, just maybe that that part of having a pipe helped them do that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So I'd love to find out what it actually does that's different to sure. uh, normal pipes, I guess, or smoking. Yes. Um, but just history-wise, have you looked back in the history of pipes? Like, do you know anything about where they came from, or how how did they begin? It's a good question, actually. I don't know the original origins, but it, it must go back. You know, we're talking way, way back into the BCs. Uh, I, I certainly know that you know there's examples of pipes out of China, right? Uh, going going way back. Uh, the I think the tobacco trade became quite strong as a you know you, you learn about the spice trail and the importance of things like cinnamon and mm. ginger and salt. But I think also tobacco was a really uh, popular commodity mm. very early on. And uh, I think because of its addictive nature with the nicotine that's, that's naturally found in it, yeah. uh, it became quite a, a sought-after item. So, yeah, I've, I've sort of read some history, but I wouldn't say I've gone and looked for the original origins of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it'd be interesting to know. And like you say, there would be different variations, like I bet in Japan... They would have a certain type of thing in India, and uh, like, yeah, I know my the the great grandfather I mentioned who had the pipe. He uh, in his early days he was also into chewing tobacco. Yes, like you would buy the the plug of tobacco. I think they called it, and you chew it. And very alien to us now, but yeah, imagine the olden days when there was a place to like spit out. It's, uh, it's com- we've we've changed quite a lot, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, probably not the nicest practice. Yeah. Yeah. But I I think one of the things that really interests me about what pipe smokers used to do was the the little idiosyncrasies they do with it. You know, the little ma- mannerisms of clean the way they'd clean their pipe, and that I've actually still got my great grandfather's tobacco cabinet at home. Okay. With a little little clay pot, and you know, I keep a bit of tobacco in there just just for you know sentimental reasons. Mm-hmm. But it it is interesting how they would have those habits and it would be something that they would really cherish and i think that's where the connection for me so it talked about the biological reasons why people smoke Mm. i think a lot of the time people think it's around just getting the nicotine fix but i do think it's also connected to our biology of the fight flight and when you take a deep breath you essentially when you draw through a cigarette you're still taking a a deep a, a deep draw through and Part of that practice is actually what the body does to, to help us relax. Mm-hmm. So when we diaphragm breathe, uh, it helps to relax the parasympathetic nervous system uh, and just to calm you. It's the opposite of running away from the saber-toothed tiger. Right. So I do think that's been a bit overlooked in terms of why people smoke. Um, it's a little bit like comfort eating or you know comfort drinking of alcohol to relax yourself. It's... The biology behind that is very much around trying to calm yourself mm. down. Because we talk a lot about mindfulness these days. Yeah. And in a way, you're right. It's it's like you're concentrating on a thing, you know, in mm. that moment, drawing in the breath, breathing out. And um, yeah. The fascinating thing to me, though, is that if we were to be able to get into a time machine and go back to 1925 or something and go for a walk, even out here in Christchurch, like if you, the, the number of people, men that you stopped, I, I bet you most of them would have had a pipe or, you know. So the the point is that things in culture kind of come and go in popularity. And, um, you know, this is something that in the past it was just accepted. It was part of society. You you probably were given one or bought one when you reached a certain age, you know. It was, yeah. It's quite interesting to think about that. Yeah. And... It's interesting. You're looking at some of the history on of, of the gold miners in New Zealand, and mm. you know, it's pretty tough life. And they wouldn't have had a lot of pleasures. Lived in you know canvas tents, and mm. you know, would have been pretty mucky and wet and cold most of the time. So, I guess having a pipe 
uh, was there as a little bit of a comfort to them and a little bit of a pleasure mm. that they could sort of do for themselves. Yeah. Mm. So I'm curious, how is it different? <laughs> yeah. Like, what is what is it? Why do you think this is a solution that can help people who maybe are smokers or or doing other things? Like, what is it that's different about it? There's a few things that are different. Uh, and I'll probably answer that question by saying what's similar first, and then sort of if I can. Uh, what's similar about it is that it's the physical cue of having something in your hand and something that you can do. And it's even talking about mindfulness. It's a it's a reminder to to breathe mm. and a reminder to to relax. So what's different about the pipe is that we don't we don't uh, have any heating element we don't have any heating coil like vaping or have any combustion of any product mm -hmm. so we're all you're doing basically is you're drawing air through the base of the pipe which is through the mouthpiece and it drives an air turbine in the base of the pipe and that drives a corresponding fan in the top of the pipe in a separate compartment and that pulls aromatic air it goes through a pod an aromatic pod and pushes aromatic air up into the nose. So basically you're essentially breathing fresh air into your lungs and drawing this aromatic airflow up into the nose where it targets the olfactory glands and you can enjoy that, that deep aroma. So I guess what's fundamentally different is that we're not using a, a product like tobacco or any product that's got nicotine in it. We've got quite strong values that we don't want to make people addicted. Um, we want something that they can essentially used to transition out of smoking or vaping uh, because they both have uh, have scientifically been proven to you know affect your your lungs and uh, other parts of the body uh, and this is something that's similar you know that people who are in that community who like to to get, you know i guess associate with people that smoke and those sorts of things it gives them something to do uh and helps them to stop relapsing back into their old habits. Yeah, so the, the pipe itself uh, doesn't have a substance like tobacco that contains nicotine. Uh, we're very keen not to have any products in there that people are going to get addicted to. Uh, and so instead of relying on, on something that needs to be heated, we use something that has a natural uh, vaporisation process, which is basically essential oils. So we're relying on the body of knowledge uh, from you know particularly the, the last several decades on essential oils and also we're looking at we're using um, some natural food flavors as well within the aromas that we have mm -hmm. so you these uh, aromas are infused into manuka wood chips uh, and basically as you draw air across them it picks up the flavor and then pushes it up into the nose and the beauty of this design is that because you don't have to heat the oils, you don't change the chemical properties of them, so you get a lot of the benefits from those oils retained. Uh, in vaping, for example, some of the the, the big big cloud vapes are heating the the oils, the vape oils, up to 400 and sometimes 600 degrees Celsius, and that really changes a lot of the chemical composition of those oils. Uh, and these. Uh, School of Medicine in California has shown that you know vapors have a 30% increased chance of lung disease. Mm. You, know, you hear this 95% safer stat still being touted from or, or mentioned around uh, from a study that was done in the UK several years ago. But uh, I think more recent research is saying that it's not as as safe as people think. Mm. Yeah. And you mentioned um, using technology to create the product. Like you've got one here in front of us, and it, so it looks like wood. Yes. Like it looks like, I don't know, oak or, you know, quite a natural look to it. Yes. Um, but the whole thing has been um, digitally printed. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So, you know, we're fairly new to the, uh, I guess, the manufacturing mm -hmm. business. And uh, one of the things with doing so many different prototype designs was the, the benefit of digital printing allows you to uh, use some quite good, CAD software. I worked with an aeronautical engineer here in Christchurch and a product designer, mm -hmm. and uh, we went through and were able to test a lot of things through digital printing. Yeah. So, yeah, so this pipe uh, is has has benefited from being able to use digital printing, and because we're we're an early startup, uh, still very much in the early phases, we 
are still manufacturing through uh, a digital printing company down in Invercargill. So it's a New Zealand-made product, which we're very proud about. Uh, and we have got some plans in the future to look at some uh, bio-based plastics and also to look at using uh, some some uh, natural timber as well for the pipes. We see it as a, as a good high-value product uh, that we could, could develop uh, using CNC engineering technology, that sort of thing. So... Yeah, it's, uh, it's early days for the pipe, but we do have lots of... That's one of the things I'm quite excited about is the potential we've got for, for different designs. And we're already, we've are already we got four different styles mm-hmm. uh, in terms of colour and things like that. And it's been interesting getting females to look and, and use the pipe as well. And we did a trial uh, last year and, and the biggest number of, of participants was actually female. Mm. And so it was, it's really good to, to see them using a pipe and and uh, enjoying that mm. and, and feeling good about being able to use something that was traditionally in the male domain. Mm. Yeah. And how are you finding it being involved in this new sort of industry where you're actually kind of disrupting it from within because you are offering a similar experience to smoking or vaping or whatever, but, but your, your pitch is that actually this is not going to damage your lungs, right? Like That's how, right. How, how yeah. are you finding that? In my mind, I'm thinking it's, there's a little bit of a tension there, so I'm just curious how you're how you're doing. Yeah, it has actually, and it's yeah. I think with any new idea, you you often do get challenged and a little bit ridiculed ridiculed early on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we've found is, as we're trying to explain what we're doing, people are naturally now very co- uh, cautious of anything that looks like a pipe or looks like smoking. I think we've all been yeah. socially programmed now to to question it and challenge it. Yeah. So we have had a, a you know an interesting time trying to promote the pipe through social media and explain what it's doing is actually trying to to help people stop smoking and vaping. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also some uh, benefits for those people that suffer from anxiety and things like that to 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 increase what we've discovered as we go along is the deep breathing is a really useful benefit from using the pipe. Uh, and it's similar to some of the breathing exercises that um, are encouraged, particularly overseas, uh, for people to improve their breathing. And it's, yeah, it's hard at the moment. We have chosen the embodiment of a pipe because that's what a lot of the people in our, I guess, the market that we're trying to encourage to change are used to mm. and are comfortable with. And, yeah, it's it's not easy, to be honest. Uh, we, we still, a lot of people... We have. To, it's not until we really explain it and take it through with them carefully that this is about breathing fresh air into the lungs. It's not breathing any kind of vape. Um, the pipe doesn't produce a smoke cloud or anything like that, so you can actually sit around close to friends. It's, it's the, the aromas are personalised to you, so uh, it's very important. Rather than so, if you're in a restaurant or you're in a movie theatre or something like that, you you aren't sharing your your vape cloud with everybody. Mm. And I, th- I think that's that's a real advantage. Yeah. 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 No, it's fascinating. Well, we'll see how it goes. Because um, what you're really trying to do is call people back to what was really common decades ago, but in a new way. So you've got to tell the story, which is the purpose of it is is that it's not damaging your lungs. It's actually you know benefiting you instead of these alternatives. Try this, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Now, I'm really keen to help. As I say, the 5,000 people in New Zealand die a year from smoking. Uh, and as I said, there's a lot unknown about vaping at the moment as well. Mm-hmm. And the potential damage, you know, it's very popular with young people, uh, particularly, you know, even pre you know, high school now as well. There's a lot of vaping going on. And we're, we're, we're targeting sort of 18 plus. We, we just have made that one of our values. But we really do want to, to help people. Uh, give them a, something they can do and enjoy after they quit because hmm. yeah, it, it does seem the relapse rates we're actually working with a, a, a smoking cessation expert here in New Zealand and uh, Manaki Ora as well we're currently doing a trial on some uh, pregnant women up in Rotorua mm-hmm. and just trying to they, they're struggling at the moment to give up smoking and you know we're we're just uh, currently working through with them and using the pipe as as a substitute. So, yeah. so it's pretty exciting. We're getting some some good feedback, and yeah, if we can do some good in places like that, then that's 
that's great. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, that was why I thought it would be worthwhile. Our mutual friend Lloyd Mander suggested this conversation, and I'm glad he did because I think it's important to highlight initiatives which are about positive, you know, healthy alternatives. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, yeah, if people wanted to find out more, what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll put some links to website or uh, social media. Um, yeah, but yes, I want to say, be great. yeah, it's been really great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining me. And I've been learning a lot about something I didn't know anything about. So, um, yeah. And the future plans, like in what are your hope, hopes and dreams five or 10 years? <laughs> yeah, good question. Uh, I just think we, you know, the idea at the moment is to, to, to basically build the awareness of what the, the pipe can do and how it can help people. Uh, so we really just want to build on that. Uh, it's been great having people like Lloyd Manda to work with. Uh, he uh, he and I started working as uh, he was a business mentor to me. And, it, you know, at first it took a little bit to sort of bring him on board and, and you know, assure him that it was a, a genuine thing that we were trying to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But it was a game changer, really, because he gave not only myself but also my partner, Heather, the confidence to... Uh, understand what we were trying what the pipe was about and she's now also helping me very much uh, she's we call her the chief activator and i'm still i guess with the chief innovator title <laughs> so we're we're still on a very much an r&d journey and developing new aromas and things like that but uh, i think in five years time five or ten years time uh the plan is to have this out there globally and to be a major disruptor to, you know, currently the, a lot of the smoking companies are pushing into the developing world. They're, they're not, they're, it's a, decline, a decreasing market in the Western world, mm. uh, but still quite prevalent, but certainly decreasing. So they are mm. turning their attention to uh, some of these lesser developed countries, and it would be nice to think that we could mm. give them an alternative rather than learning the, the hard way. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. Well, we'll put some links in the show notes and um, we'll watch the progress and see how it goes. But thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And good to hear some of your journey as well. Oh, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Scott. I know for me, there were several things that stood out and I really enjoyed hearing about this new entrepreneurial journey that he's been on. Well, actually, I guess he's been on it for a while, but hearing about what he's up to today and how it's going. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to things that we talked about, including the Compipe website. And check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog as well. Until next time!